I want to begin by telling you about a situation that our family found ourselves in. It was a situation we didn't want to be in. We were at Walt Disney World a couple years back, which they say is the happiest place on earth. But after you hear this, you might change your mind. We were standing in line, the five of us, for the classic Disney ride, It's a Small World. And I will not start singing the theme song for It's a Small World, because if I do, that will be in your head for the remainder of our time this morning, and you won't hear a word that I say in the sermon. But some of you are already humming that in your head. We were in line. We waited in a long line. Why, you ask? I have no idea, for It's a Small World. But it snaked around inside the pavilion. And finally, it came time for us to board the ride. And Lauren was holding Avery, our youngest, and suddenly she went pale and she said, Mommy, I don't feel good. And right then and there, she threw up all over Lauren. All over her, it was dripping down onto the floor. We were packed there in the line. It's horrific, I know. The woman to the left of us went, Oh! And the man to the right, grabbed his bag and unzipped it real fast and grabbed out baby wipes and started pulling them out and handing them to us and saying, here you go, guys, we're all in this together. Boy, I wish I could find an address for that guy. I want to write him a note. God bless that guy. He was so kind and helpful. But I said, we have got to get out of here. A lady, uh, uh, a Disney cast member came up to us and said, I am so sorry. What can we do for you? Can we get you a fast pass for a free life? ride later on we said no we just got to go so when that boat came up we stepped across the boat and out of the ride and went out of the park and she threw up again when we got outside the park and again when we got across the lake on the ferry happiest place on earth my foot Whew. now we'll see if we can make a segue from that to <laughs> to our text in our text this morning, which is Micah chapter 6, we were in Micah last week. We're going to be in Micah again today. And I would challenge you to grab your Bible and go there with me to Micah chapter 6. In this chapter, God's people, God's nation, His chosen people in the Old Testament Judah, they find themselves in a situation where they do not want to be. An unenviable position, and here's where they are. This is the imagery of, of Micah chapter 6. They find themselves as a defendant in a courtroom where God is the judge. Now, this is not a place you want to be. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 1, we find the Lord saying to His people, Arise and plead your case. Give your defense. Now, God's people had been embroiled in a number of sins. They had committed a number of crimes. And if you just flip through the pages of this Old Testament prophetic work, you find several of these, and we won't mention them all, but I'll mention a few. Idolatry. They had been bowing down to the work of their hands. That's the language of Micah. They were worshiping what was less than God in the place of God. Now, is idolatry a problem for us today? You better believe that it is. 
in our world today, our stuff can be our God. Our money can be our God. Pleasure can become our God. Power can become our God. Even allegiance to our country, to an earthly nation, can be our God. I've heard a lot about, read a lot about recently, this idea of Christian nationalism. It's been in the news a lot. Been on the minds of a lot of people. Now to be clear, you can be a faithful Christian, and you can love your country. And you can want to live and help to create a righteous nation. But the line between patriotism and idolatry can be quite thin. And if we're not careful, we can get to a point where we elevate the second amendment above the second commandment. To love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we can esteem the Constitution more than we esteem the Holy Scriptures. So if we're not careful, even allegiance to our country can become an idol. There are dangers of idolatry on all sides. And we must be very cautious. And this was a problem for God's people in the time of the prophet Micah. Another problem, another sin for which they are standing trial before Almighty God was covetousness. Rich people were seizing the property of, of poor people. There was oppression in the land, and they were violating the tenth, the tenth commandment when God said, you may not covet what your neighbor has. There was a failure of leadership. And we can read about this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, or chapter 7, verse 3, where the people who had been entrusted to lead the people in a godly way, well, they had greatly taken advantage of the people, and they were not living up to their calling. There were corrupt business practices, and there was violence, and we could go on and on and on. But because of these sins and many more, the Lord has summoned Judah to stand trial before Him. This is the, the, um, the image world in which we find ourselves in Micah chapter 6 1. It's a courtroom scene. We can picture a courtroom scene as we read chapter 6. Verse 1, when God says, hear what the Lord says, or, or Micah chapter 6, 1, the prophet says, hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. God says, arise and plead your case. Well, let's stop for a moment and just allow this scene to sink in. Let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a moment. We are standing trial before God. You are. You're not standing before Judge Wapner or Judge Joe Brown or Judge Judy. You're not pleading your case before the Tennessee Supreme Court or even before the U.S. Supreme Court. You are going before the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God of the universe. And He knows everything about you. And he knows everything you've ever done in public and in private. He knows every angry, indecent, impure thought that you've ever had. He knows every manipulative, self-seeking attitude that's ever motivated you in your dealings with others. 
knows the extent to which sin has had its way with you in your life. He knows you're guilty, guilty, guilty. Even before he walks into the courtroom. And then he says to you, he says to us, plead your case. Make your defense. Where do you even begin? What do you even say? Well, before Judah can say anything, and as we've already established, Judah, God's people, they are guilty. Before they can even respond, or maybe because a valid response doesn't exist, God continues, verse 2, he says, Hear you mountains. He continues the thought from verse 1. Hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. We learn that this is no ordinary courtroom. Because God has summoned the entire created order, the hills and the mountains and the foundations of the earth to come together and to witness his indictment against his own people. Against Judah. God's chosen people. And then, God the judge says something that, well, you wouldn't hear an ordinary judge say, and these words to me are somewhat heartbreaking. He says in verse 3, Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. What did I do to you to make you want to turn your back on me? God knows that Judah, that his people, they believe that he has wronged them. And that's why they've rejected him. Because they feel slighted by God. Is that why some people reject God today? God's been picking on me, people might say. He's been too hard on me. He's been punishing me. Why has God allowed this to happen in my life? Why has he done this to me? Well, that's not necessarily the case. And in this case, God says in verse 4, I haven't wronged you to his people. He says, in fact, the opposite is true. Let's read verses 4 and 5. He says, listen, I brought you up from the land of Egypt and I redeemed you from the house of slavery and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. We're familiar with this account. When God rescued his people from Egyptian slavery using Moses and his brother and his sister, God wants his people to remember how they were delivered by him, rescued by him, redeemed by him. And he goes on, verse 5, My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. This is from the book of Numbers. And then from the book of Joshua, we find this. What happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. This is speaking of when God's people crossed over the Jordan to make their grand entrance into the promised land. I imagine verses 4 and 5 of God almost saying, hey, hey, come in here together. Huddle together with me. I want to remind you, because it seems you've forgotten by the way that you've been behaving, I want to remind you what I've done for you. The ways that I've saved you. So come in here. Don't you remember, don't you remember how you were in bondage in Egypt and I set you free? Don't you remember how you were wandering in the wilderness and I brought you into the land of promise? Don't you remember that? 
what did I ever do to you to make you want to turn your back on me? How have I wearied you? And it's in these verses that we discovered that this is, this is no ordinary judge. This judge has a history with the accused that he recounts. This judge is not only a judge, he's also their savior. Well, finally, Judah speaks. The people speak in verse 6. And I hope you're still imagining this courtroom scene. The defendant speaks. And they say, with what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? And to their credit, let's just pause right there. To their credit, this is a good question. This is not just a good question. This is the best question. This is the question for all people in every age. The question we should all be asking how shall we respond to the gracious acts of our Lord? How shall we live in light of what He has done for us? With what shall I come before the Lord? But then it all goes downhill from here as they keep speaking. The people say, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings with calves a year old? Well, so far so good. Because we know the Lord required sacrifices, offerings in the Old Testament. But then it gets more absurd. Verse 7, will the Lord be pleased with Thousands of rams. How about this? Ten thousands of rivers of oil. And then it just gets outrageous. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What are you talking about? Child sacrifice? Absolutely not. The Bible elsewhere condemns that practice. And what we come to understand as we read these verses is that they don't, these people, these proposals, they misunderstand the nature of sacrifices, of religious activities. The people think it's their price of entry into the presence of a holy God, when in fact, these are God's means of administering grace to them. And they become increasingly absurd. The people are, in essence, asking, what could we possibly do to win your favor, O God? And if this were us, we might be asking, well, God, shall we extend our worship services by an hour, by two hours, by three hours? Shall I increase my contribution to 20% of my income, 30%, 50%, 70%? How about we add two extra Bible classes per day at the church building and we all commit to being here for each one? Shall we drive the church van all the way to Tullahoma and back, Murfreesboro and back, Nashville and back to pick up folks who want to come to church? Shall we write 20 extra verses to our God, He is alive, and just sing the whole song on repeat all Sunday long? What do you want from us, Lord? We can imagine God here saying, just stop. You're being silly. That's how I hear Him when He speaks. When He answers the people in verse 8. When Micah says, the prophet, listen. He has told you what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? We heard Tony read it earlier. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice. To love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. That's the answer to the question. That's what the Lord wants. 
God is saying, I don't care about required sacrifices if they are not married to a life of justice, kindness, and mercy. In the Proverbs, we read chapter 21, verse 3, justice and righteousness is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And Jesus chided the Pharisees and he said, you have elevated sacrifices above righteousness and mercy and faithfulness. You need to focus on those things without neglecting the other. And I think he would say to us, your religious practices are meaningless to me if they are divorced from a lifestyle of devotion. You know what is good. You know what the Lord has required. To do justice. And to love kindness. And to walk humbly with your God. So central is this verse to the teaching of the scriptures. That one ancient Jewish rabbi said. 613 precepts were communicated to Moses. 365 negative precepts. Micah came and reduced them all to three principles. To do justice. To love kindness. To walk humbly with your God. And I think you'd agree that these three statements boil down the kind of life to which God has called us. The judge says, I have saved you. The judge who's also the Savior says, I have redeemed you. I've rescued you. I've delivered you. And in return, I expect you to embrace a life of righteousness, of faithfulness, of mercy. To do justice. To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. To embrace what we might call the primary forms of love. And these are our marching orders too. And I say that because these commitments are extolled in the New Testament. These are not relegated to the Old Testament law. These are timeless principles true for all people in every time period. To do justice, what does that mean? It means, in other words, to act with fairness with honesty, with integrity. It is immensely difficult to be fair and to be objectively just in a hyper-partisan world. Listen, Micah lived in a society among God's people where there was little regard for doing what was right and where the most vulnerable were at risk. Does that sound familiar to you? We live in a society like that too. Were the most vulnerable among us, the unborn, the immigrant, the impoverished, they're at risk. And justice means advocating for the fair treatment of all people on a grand scale, but it also means being just on a smaller scale. It means being honest in our individual interactions with each other, in our business dealings, where our word is our bond. And most especially, it means not taking advantage of those with less power and less influence than us. Do justice, says the Lord. And love kindness. Our hearts should be full of mercy and compassion for others. You know, in our world, kindness is radical. And we don't just have kindness. We should delight in showing kindness. 
Some people probably believe, you know what, kindness is sort of for wimps. You can't get your way in this world if you're kind. You can't achieve great things if you're kind. Well, then I guess I want to be a wimp. And I bet some of these people would have called, if they lived in the first century, they would have called Jesus a wimp because of his radical kindness. Because we've been called to be unexpectedly gracious with others as God has showered us unexpectedly with his grace. And we cease returning rudeness with rudeness and harshness with more harshness. Instead, we demonstrate radical kindness. We love kindness and we walk humbly with our God. Listen, sharing a right relationship with God always begins with humility and not arrogance and not pride. It is by grace you've been saved, not by your own work so nobody can boast is what Paul says. So check your pride at the door. And remember, his ways are not your ways and his thoughts are not your thoughts. He doesn't owe you anything. I'm not entitled to receive anything from God. It's all grace. Upon grace, upon grace. So humble yourself before him. He is God and you're not. And I'm not. And when we do that, that humility will begin to bleed over in our interactions with others. Do justice. Love kindness. Walk humbly with your God. These are the judge's requirements for the accused. I want you to imagine once again that you're standing in that courtroom before God who is the judge. And you're not standing there in Judah's place. You're standing there because that's where we all find ourselves. We all find ourselves guilty before an all-powerful God. And all the charges have been brought against you. And all your sins have been laid bare in the courtroom. And you have no answer. And you have no defense. Because you're guilty. And I'm guilty and we all are. And you know what? There is no sentence that's tough enough for everything that you've done. But the sentence is death. It's eternal destruction and separation from the one who made you. But then the judge. God announces. Listen. I have some news to share with you. All your charges have been thrown out. Your record is cleared. Because somebody has come forward to face the penalty, to pay the penalty for your crimes. In fact, he was put to death for them. So you can go scot-free. Really? Who would do that for me? Really? My son did that for you. He came to this earth, and he walked humbly, with, with me, his father, throughout his life. And at his death, my perfect justice was satisfied when he bore your sin. And my perfect kindness was extended to you when he died in your place. And it's at this moment you realize you're not only standing before your judge. You're also standing before your savior. And you say, God, thank you. Thank you so much. Surely there's something I... I I can do to express my gratitude, to demonstrate my thanks. And God says, yes, in fact, there is. There is something you can do. Here's what is good. 
Here's what I require of you, my child. I want you to do justice. And I want you to love kindness. And I want you to walk humbly with me. And we should want to say, Lord, of course. I most certainly will. I mean, that is the very least that I can do for what you've done for me. That's, that's what I'll focus on every day. That's how I'll live. You know, when we realize what God has done for us through Jesus, it, it should draw out from us a Micah 7, 18 and 19 reflection. It should cause us to speak words like the prophet speaks towards the end of his, his book here. In chapter 7, verses 18 and 19, and I've got them up here on the screen. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. That's our God. And when we reach the end of our road, and we have lived justly and kindly, and when we've walked humbly with our God and by His grace, we will hear those words that we all desire to hear. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. Today we extend the invitation to all those who want to come and to receive the loving kindness of our God through His Son, Jesus Christ. If you have not confessed His name and repented of your sins and been washed so those can be removed from you, we invite you to do that today. If you're in the house or if you're down the hall in one of our overflow rooms, you can come in just a moment when we stand and sing a song of encouragement. If you're at home, we're so thankful that you've joined us. You can reach out to us by calling our office number. We're open every weekday from 8 to 3. Let us know what's going on with you and how we can pray for you. Or you can shoot me an email and let me know how I can pray for you as well. If there are any spiritual needs in the house this morning, we invite you to come right now as we stand and sing.